Hi, I'm Dr. Marsha, and you're listening to the Self-Care Chronicle. As a licensed psychologist, I know the importance of self-care in maintaining my mental wellness. But I'm often pretty busy running around trying to help others navigate their way through life. And when my schedule gets really hectic, I struggle with self-care. The very self-care that I always recommend to other people. And that made me wonder, am I the only one? How do other mental health professionals handle their self-care? So I reached out to a bunch of my peers and asked them if they would talk to me about their experiences. Join me each week as I chat with a fellow mental health professional about stress management and self-care. Welcome to the Self-Care Chronicle. Welcome, welcome. It's episode five of the Self-Care Chronicle. I'm Dr. Marsha, and I'm a licensed psychologist. Each week on the podcast, I chat with a different mental health professional about how they handle their own self-care. Today, I'm chatting with Dr. Anna Kojic. Dr. Kojic is a psychologist with well over a decade of experience in the assessment, diagnosis, and treatment of severe mental illness. In her current role, she performs forensic evaluations and testifies in court as an expert witness. Not only has Dr. Kojic worked as a treatment provider, she has also trained and supervised a number of future mental health experts at the master's and doctoral training levels. For more information on the excellent work that she's doing, be sure to head on over to drmarshabrown.com slash deconstructing stress after the show and check out our bio. I'm so excited to have her on the show with me today. So let's jump right into our chat. I'd like to welcome Dr. Anna Kojic. Thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Kojic. Welcome. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So first, I'd like to ask just about your journey into your current position. And by that, I mean, first, why did you decide to become a psychologist? And then once you decided to become a psychologist, what was your journey like from there to your current position and your current population? Yeah, so it's interesting. My journey is a little bit unconventional. I think I became a psychologist sort of by accident. I've wanted to, (laughs) when I was a kid, I dreamt of being a homicide detective and that was my goal and that was my thing. And my family was vehemently opposed and they're like, no, that's a terrible job. You know, you'll be dealing with death and so now. And so then in attempt to please my family, and also I think that every immigrant wants a doctor in their family, I thought I'm going to be a doctor. So I was pre-med and I did not like it at all. I could not care less about anatomy. I could barely stomach chemistry. Biology was palatable, but not enjoyable. And so then I took some psychology classes and I thought, well, this is kind of cool. So then I switched from pre-med to psychology with the idea of being a profiler, and that also did not work. Um, so, then, yeah. um, so then I thought, well, why don't I do forensic psychology? Because that kind of sounds cool. And that gave me the opportunity to work with sort of the law enforcement criminal background that I was wanting, you know, to begin with when I wanted to be a homicide detective. While I was in school, I interned at various correctional facilities in various county jails. And then when all was said and done, now going on 10 years, 
I have been working at a maximum security forensic hospital. So for individuals who have a severe mental disorder, but also have some sort of criminal involvement. So we have individuals that, well, it's a it's an all-male facility, but in California, the way that the laws work is unless folks have had gender-confirming surgery, they are not considered their preferred gender until everything is completed. So, you know, that sort of limits us. But anyway, we have folks who are assigned male gender at birth. That is who we house. And for various commitments from being found uh, not guilty by reason of insanity to incompetent to stand trial to individuals with mental health disorders who are parolees and individuals who would otherwise be confined to a prison but are having mental health difficulties that the prison cannot address. Okay. All right. That's interesting. You work in a maximum security forensic psychiatric hospital. And so can you talk a little bit about what the most stressful thing about your job is? You know, oddly enough, the most stressful thing about my job isn't actually the patients. One would think so, because mainly the type of folks with whom I work are folks who have done some fairly serious things, usually either murder, attempted murder, or pretty heinous sex crimes. But I think a challenging piece has been there's a lack of transition or middle ground between forensic facilities, be they prisons or psychiatric hospitals, and some sort of transition into the community. Inevitably, what ends up happening is folks are discharged with little to no support, or if they are discharged to some sort of a boarding care, there isn't a control or a motivation in place for folks to remain treatment adherent. And so inevitably, what we see is a large amount of our folks returning to us just because there really isn't an availability of of aftercare. And that, I think, is by far the most challenging aspect about what we do. It's almost like we stabilize the folks and then they get let out and then they become homeless and then they stop taking their meds and then they commit another crime and we just do this all over again. And it's, it's a challenge because, you know, actually this week I've made two telephone calls to two different district attorneys in counties in California and I've spoken with them about how I don't think that these individuals present a significant risk to others because of their mental illness. And so then, you know, I go on the stand saying that with conviction, because I don't think that that's the case. But it's sort of like, then their question is, well, you know, can you predict that they won't harm anybody? Or can you predict that they will stay on their medication? Can you predict that they will stay in their boarding cares? And it's like, well, no, the answer is no. I, there are no controls. I cannot, mm-hmm. I cannot predict anything. On the, at the same time, you know, do we keep them confined, essentially incarcerated, because we don't have enough facilities that provide aftercare. Well, that's violating their civil rights. That's not really helping anybody either. It's just kind of a a cycle, it sounds like. Right. Can you talk a little bit about how serving your patients has changed since COVID-19? COVID-19 has been a challenge. The institution in which I work has thankfully been able to remain relatively safe. As of today, we only have a handful of positive cases, and that would be staff members and patients combined. 
Okay. Which other facilities could not say. Other facilities have not been so fortunate. Part of that has been because precautions were taken relatively early on. Folks were issued masks, both staff members and patients. Some telework was instituted. There's, I think, about five gallons of disinfectant at every corner. So there's definitely things. Groups have largely been confined to the unit. So it's a maximum security forensic facility, but the patients still have access to certain parts of the hospital. That, as of COVID-19, has changed, and they are um, largely confined to their unit. One would think that that would have been a hard thing for them, but essentially, oddly enough, it has actually worked out well, and we have had less incidents of violence, go figure. So, but in terms of court testimony, and in my mind, the hospital exists to protect the public. So. A lot of it revolves around courts. So court testimony has changed. Most of this, all of it is telecourt. Interviews have also changed. Very few of us do face-to-face interviews. Most folks try to do tele-interviews or record review only. And, you know, none of those options are ideal and all of them pose various, well, pros and cons. And so that's been a challenge figuring out how to provide the most accurate information to the courts, while at the same time minimizing exposure and trying to keep folks safe. So that's been a little dance that we've tried to figure out. And I think everybody is doing it a little bit differently. Can you talk a little bit about self-care for you? How do you practice it? What is your kind of go-to method or the thing that, you know, helps you the most to feel better, to feel restored. And if you have any go-to things, if you have like a couple of practices, what are your, you know, favorite ones? It's a good question. And I think I would have answered it differently prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. Oh, that's great. Can you, can you talk about both a little bit before what your answer would have been and then now what your answer would be? I think that's great. So I think before my answer, if one was honest, would have been, well, you know, I've upped my consumption of wine from one glass of evening to two wine, two glasses of evening, <laughs> two glasses per evening, and then my cheese consumption has also skyrocketed. And magically, my pants seem to have shrunk in the closet. I don't know how that happened. Um, so, <laughs> those were sort of my coping skills prior to COVID-19. COVID-19 had a... The lockdown had a really stressful effect on me in that it really reminded me that I was a lot more extroverted than I thought. So yeah, probably the first three weeks I was, you know, kind of crawling up walls. And I think that that little bit of added pressure, but also consultation with other providers sort of brought it to light that mental health practitioners were hurting as well as patients during the COVID crisis. Yeah. And so, you know, in some ways, because we sort of had this collective, we are all suffering together mindset, at least for me, it was sort of a a wake up call. It's like, okay, well, Anna, you have to get some better coping skills and wine and cheese are lovely, but in moderation. Um, (laughs) So so honestly, I was somewhat reluctantly uh, signed back up for therapy. Which when I tell people that, they're like, you talk to people about killing people. Why aren't you in therapy? And I thought, well, it's completely normal. Doesn't everybody talk to people about killing people? And the answer is no, they don't. Um, That's not not the whole topic. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> so I think having that support also, I was able to, you know, it's, it's amazing when you can't do something, how much you're like, wow, I really miss this. So because the gyms were closed, it was like, oh, wow, I kind of miss working out, even though my gym membership was collecting dust in the corner when the gyms were open, because why go to the gym? Um, but I think that I think the added stress of COVID-19 really brought the need, at least for me, to practice what I preach, you know, because to my patients, I thought, well, you know, remain positive and meditate and talk to people when you feel stressed out and eat healthy and exercise. And I was doing very few of those things. Right. <laughs> but since the COVID pandemic, I've been able to take care of myself in a way that, that was more adaptive and better. Yeah. And I, I think you're not alone in that. I think that's an excellent point in terms of the fact that we as mental health professionals, we're human beings and we're affected by this because this whole thing has affected everyone. And I think that we, a lot of us sometimes do that thing where we're, you know, so busy trying to help other people and, you know, just help one more person or just do a little bit more work and just push yourself a little bit harder because we want to make a difference. We want to do good things, but then we end up suffering in terms of sleep, in terms of caring for ourselves, in terms of taking that time for ourselves. And so I think that for this pandemic, I think for a lot of people, a lot of situations, it sort of highlighted the things that needed to change. Right. Agreed. I'm also happy you mentioned the, the thing about therapy, because I think that it's definitely such a great resource and such an important thing to do. And especially for, for me, just during this pandemic, there were a lot of things as well that ended up coming up. For me, I tend to just think that I need to be productive, need to be doing something at all times. And if I'm not, I feel like I'm failing miserably. You know, my days were spent running around like a chicken with his head cut off. And then when all that was taken away, it really kind of highlighted for me that that was all I was doing. And I wasn't stopping to think hold on a second, didn't you forget to do something today or like, take care of yourself? Yes. That. <laughs> so then, yeah. So then I too, like I decided to, that it was probably time for me to figure out some things about what was going on for me because I felt really stuck and I felt like I needed to do more, but there wasn't more to do. And I was kind of like, that's not normal. So I um, went in and I got a coach, but a lot of it is just like therapy. Mm -hmm. So I think that's so important to just be willing to do that because I think that some mental health professionals are not necessarily willing to do that. Right. And it's interesting how, at least I'm interpreting in it as in my case, you know, I think I unknowingly internalized at least a part of the stigma about seeking mental health because it was hard to get over that jump. And it wasn't until a, a colleague and a friend of mine said, well, why don't you call my lady? She's great. And she sort of pressed me on it. And I didn't really have a reason as to why I didn't call anybody, you know, other than maybe like some feeble excuse that I thankfully did not verbalize of, well, I'm not crazy. But yeah, I think that, you know, at least for me, there was that little bit of stigma that was just enough to prevent me from seeking out 
support where I would have told somebody who was experiencing exactly the same thing as me, you know, free-floating anxiety, worries about not knowing what the future holds, possibility about income loss, all of those things. Right. You know, I would have recommended therapy for them, of course. But when it came time for me, somehow I thought that Cheetos were an acceptable therapy. I think that's an excellent point. It's very honest and insightful and so self-aware for you to be able to see that and also say that. There are so many of us that tout therapy and the benefits of it. And therapy is fantastic. But we may be a little bit more hesitant to actually go and seek it out ourselves for whatever reason during times that we probably should or definitely should. Yeah, definitely. And so one of the things that you mentioned was realizing you're an extrovert and how much you liked being able to not be locked down in the house. And then you have to shift your practice of you know, like self-care because you talked a little bit about the gym and going there and then some people don't necessarily feel safe doing that so they've got to shift that and so it's a challenge yeah it really is but i think you know i have discovered the joys of working out at home mm-hmm. um, <laughs> nice <laughs> and my elliptical machine has stopped being used for you know to hang various things on it and it's actually being used for exercise nice and so i think that you know i'm getting well acquainted with push-ups now again okay so you know it sort of forces you to be creative it's interesting though because the other night i was watching a documentary on tv and it was about world war ii and i thought you know what with all of my bitching and complaining things could actually be so much worse so, you know, that sort of brought a reality check to me. It's like, yeah, okay, Anna, you're stuck in your home and you're kind of complaining about that. But, you know, no one's actively trying to kill me either. So, yeah. so you know, all things considered, it's not too bad. Yeah. And I think that's sort of been helpful too in terms of coping strategies is, is perspective taking. Yeah, it puts things into perspective in terms of what's important and what's not. And also, I've actually really enjoyed this time because I got to slow down and I got to spend more time with my family. So I'm really grateful for that. And I've gotten to really have time to try to help people and try to make a difference. I got opportunities that I just wouldn't have if I were still running around with absolutely no time to come up for air. Yes. Yeah, that's true too. Mm -hmm. Did you attempt to make sourdough bread? (laughs) <laughs> I did not. Um, okay. I, <laughs> For some odd reason, that is a thing. I'm just wondering. <laughs> yeah, there are lots of things that people are trying out, like cooking. And I think it's great, like just finding different things that you didn't have time for before or that you hadn't thought about before. So people are being super creative and finding ways to entertain themselves. So that's awesome. I did not try to like bake any any bread or anything like that did you try any new recipes well you know i always dabbled in cooking so that hasn't really changed Mm -hmm. but i was enjoying people's baking fails that they shared on social media (laughs) yeah nice very nice so for so many people the whole journey to self-care is sort of trial and error can you talk a little bit about whether or not that was your experience you know i am i sort of have a squirrel brain and i get tired of things so then the things that are self-care for me tend to vary 
Before the COVID-19, of course, one of the things that I really enjoyed, which was part of my self-care, was dancing. And obviously, that is no longer a thing. But I had to remind myself to use more healthier things that I liked for self-care that have worked for me in the past, such as, you know, working out, such as walking my dog or hiking or, you know, even meditation. And less of the coping skills, which I liked, but were not necessarily healthy, like binge watching TV. So it was a little bit of a trial and error. And then also just sort of having enough skills to where one doesn't get bored. I think boredom is a lot of what folks have struggled with, even as we've been cooped up in our houses, you know, anxiety and boredom, and then having enough things to sort of take care of both, both the boredom and the anxiety. Right. And so you said that for you, you like some things for a little bit and then you get bored. So you move on to something else. Is that the most challenging thing about self-care for you? Or is there something else that you find more of a challenge when it comes to, you know, implementing self-care? I think that's part of it. Another part of it is that self-care took a back seat when things were fine and it didn't feel as important to me. You know, taking time out for me to take care of me just sort of wasn't important. And like you were saying, you know, when you go, 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 it's easy to then neglect some of the ways in which, you know, some of the ways in which we have to take care of ourselves. And so then I think that when I was forced to pause, it was a matter of making myself a priority and really scheduling time to, I mean, it sounds kooky, but scheduling time for self-care and not opting to wash the dishes instead and not opting to do the laundry instead, which prior to this level of stress, I would have prioritized other things that needed doing over self-care. And that's funny in terms of prioritizing, say, oh, I'll just, it's, it's that whole, I'll just get one more thing done. I'll feel better if I can make sure the laundry's done. I'll feel better if the dishes are clean. I'll feel better if I do all the things that need to be done. But it's just putting off really taking care of ourselves, Right. And the truth of the matter is, I'm not sure if we do feel better when the dishes are done. Because the dishes will always be there. Yeah. It is pile no. up. And we'll make more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And the clothes will always be there. And so the tasks that are sort of never ending, I think that we can pause those in favor of us. Absolutely. And I think it's really important to do that. I thought that the whole idea of like scheduling self-care it was a little bit odd until I realized if I didn't schedule it, I wasn't going to do it. And then I was just like, okay, well, I guess I have to put it in my, put it in my calendar. Right. And I think for those of us that are driven and task-oriented and go, 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 it's a really good way, at least for me, to lie to me. And if I schedule it, <laughs> then I can cross it off my list. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's sort of like two birds, one stone. You know, I feel accomplished. And also I've tricked myself into doing something for me. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, it's definitely a good way to do it. Thank you for taking the time out to chat. And this is really interesting. I, I liked hearing about in terms of your work, how you've had to sort of shift things as far as Corona and then hearing the differences between your self-care then and your self-care now in terms of your, your perspective on it and 
how your philosophy on it has changed. This whole year has been just stressful and difficult and, you know, starting with COVID to like everything else that's going on. And I think that 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 ends up affecting us as mental health professionals because as the people around us in society get more stressed out and more anxious, all these symptoms either develop or get worse, we end up feeling that because people are leaning more on us to help them navigate their way through these difficult times. Agreed. And I think that it's given some of us an opportunity to kind of see that the way that we were just sort of going, going, going before is probably not the best way to make sure that we can continue to go in the future if we're not like stopping to take care of ourselves. So at the end of all this, I'd like to ask a question that has nothing to do with self-care or the job or any of that stuff. It's just a fun question that eh, I want to know the answer to. It's kind of random stuff, but it's fun for me. So today, let's see. Your question, is fruit a legitimate dessert? Yeah. I mean, fruit can be a legitimate meal. Really? I mean, Yeah. You know, when it's hot outside, like sometimes you just want to eat mangoes or watermelon and that's your dinner. But I'm not a dessert person. Honestly, like cheese is dessert. So, um, okay. well, cheese is life. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but yeah, like I think, you know, and mango is super sweet. So like a mango could be dessert. Okay. Not like apples, but, you know. But mango, okay. Because mango, we yeah, like mango is pretty sweet. Yeah. Banana's a meal. A banana? Do you mean like breakfast or like a dinner meal? Like breakfast, yeah. Okay. All right. Fair enough. And so for you, since you're not a dessert person, like if you are craving something, do you usually crave like salty? Yeah. Okay. Which sucks because there's no way to go salty and healthy. Like at all. <laughs> yeah. That's a tough one. That's difficult, right? I think I was a horse in my former life. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't, I don't think you can investigate that, but all right. <laughs> all right. Uh, thank you so much again for uh, taking time to chat with me. Pleasure. Pleasure. And take care. You too. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining me for the Self-Care Chronicle. If you liked this episode, please pass it along to someone else who might enjoy it. To find out more about today's episode or listen to additional episodes, visit drmarshabrown.com and click on Deconstructing Stress. That's D-R-M-A-R-S-H-A-B-R-O-W-N.com and click on Deconstructing Stress. See you next time.